grab a seat. Welcome back to church. As Art pointed out again, he's just a funny man today. He said this is, uh, when I said shake uh, the hand of a person or two, he said literally. <laughs> a person or two. It's always here, person or two. And I heard that Janessa beat John in getting ready for church this morning. Is that true, John? Oh, you better pick up the pace, buddy. First time ever. <laughs> Who is your one? Uh, that is a question that we have saddled on each of you at the Mill Church over the course of the study in Romans. Our goal is to make disciples at the Mill. Uh, we do that by reaching people, by developing them in Christ's likeness, by sending them out as missionaries. Um, while we're studying Romans, the question I keep asking is, who is your one? Meaning, to be clear, that we are asking every person at the Mill Church to prayerfully identify one person in your sphere of influence that you will pray for, that you will tell about Jesus Christ over the course of this study in the book of Romans, that you'll have a friendship with them, that you'll spend time with them, that by God's grace they'll come to know them, uh, to know him rather. Uh, Nicole Barg preached last Sunday. I heard she did a fabulous job and is really maturing. That comment was made. Um, I'm delighted that she could share with you. What you may not have known is that um, well, you probably, I tell the story of Nicole a lot on a Monday night. It's the only good thing that's ever come out of a Monday night service at the Mill Church. We tried those a few years back. She sat right there and she surrendered her life. Tears just flowed down her cheeks. This girl from Pittsville who had no idea God was interested in her or pursuing her. She was invited by a friend. She became a Christian. She's now a missionary. And last Sunday, her younger sister, Skye, to Nicole's preaching, responded and gave her heart to Christ. Isn't that awesome? Do you trust God can do that with your siblings? Do you trust God can do that with your friends, with your co-workers, with your neighbors? I'm inviting you to join me in trusting him for big things over the course of this series. We're not talking about anything major here. Don't be intimidated. We're just talking about baby steps. Um, I know you're thinking this is some monumental task, Pastor. I'm asked to turn my, my atheist neighbor into a missionary. That's crazy, right? But in the least, you can do some small things. Uh, there's a book that talks about small habits. It's called Atomic Something. It's a New York Times uh, bestseller. Um, if you want to stop eating chips and candy, the author uh, posits, put nuts and fruit on the counter. That's what he says. So you'll snack on nuts and fruits. That's a small thing. If you want to start working out, don't picture this 45-minute ordeal. Just work out for three minutes. Walk to the mailbox and back a, a few times. Uh, maybe your goal would be not going to the gym, but just driving to the gym. Maybe that would be a noble, noble goal to start with. Just get there in your car. Set small goals. So this is what I'm thinking about for you. Why not committing daily to prayer, to, to, to pray for somebody for one minute? Is that reasonable? The same person every day over the course of this study for one minute. Prayer is, is effective. Prayer moves the heart of God. Prayer invokes his action. Think about that. What about inviting him over, her over, for dinner once a month? What about doing that? What about going on a walk? What about interacting at work? Wouldn't it be remarkable if, if 10 people or even 5 people accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, because we were intentional about the Great Commission. That'd be amazing. 
that'd be worth celebrating. So I want to invite you to get serious about it. Father, I pray as we get started this morning that we would be serious about this goal. I pray that we wouldn't think, just just take a, a proverbial pitchfork and throw it on to our, our neighbor and think other people are more qualified, more confident, and just use excuse after excuse to, to be intentional with someone. But I pray we would get rid of the pitchfork, take this as our own task, and accept it. You said go into all the world and preach the gospel baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and you promise to be with us until the end of the age. Amen. I read a book a couple, uh, actually it's been a decade or more ago, called Unchristian. They keep, uh, it's such a great research book, they keep revising it. Um, I read it with a staff at Northridge. It includes the results of this nationwide study conducted by a team of researchers called the Barna Group. And what they did is they compared the lives of Christians to those of non-Christians to see what the actual differences are. Not the professions of faith, not where they're at on Sunday morning, but the actual difference in their lives. And the survey was completely anonymous because they wanted to get people's unabashed honesty. And here's the results. They found Christians cuss less in public but not necessarily in private. <laughs> but Christians cuss less in public. Christians do give more to the poor. Christians are actually less likely to recycle, believe it or not. I think that's a shame, but maybe the going thought is the world's all going to burn up one day anyway. Let's just uh, live it out. I don't know. Um, less likely to recycle. Um, more likely to give money to religious uh, non profits, and Christians, on the whole, buy fewer lottery tickets. Pat yourselves on the back. Will you do that? Congratulations. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to view a pornographic website. Isn't that tragic? Just as likely. Christians are just as likely to overconsume alcohol as non-Christians. Christians are just as likely to do illegal drugs or take prescription medications not prescribed to them. Christians are just as likely to willing to lie to be to, to be willing to lie to get out of a spot. Okay, if I'm looking at you this morning when I say something sensitive, please don't interpret it as looking uh, as as me reading something into your life because I only have seven people to look at. Okay, that's the reality of my situation. Okay, so don't get be too alarmed if I'm looking right at you when I say something. Um, Christians are just as likely to say an unkind thing about someone behind their back in the last 30 days as a non-Christian, okay? In the study, 84% of non-Christians say they know at least one believer personally, but only 15% thought that the person's lifestyle was significantly different than their own lifestyle. And we know, let's face it, there are mischaracterizations of Christians out there, especially in news media, but can we at least own partially that this is true and that we're to blame for it? These surveys were self-reported, okay? So we have to ask, is this really what Christianity ought to look like? Is this what the Apostle Paul was talking about? Does the Bible say, blessed are those who cuss less at family reunions and buy Powerball tickets less frequently? Or does the Bible say that we will be known by the way that we love God and the way that we love other people? Amen? So, today the Apostle Paul will teach us in Romans 2 the difference between religion and true faith. 
and he'll say that religion basically is a thin veneer over a heart that's still every bit as sinful as the world's, those who are religious, okay? So therefore, religion in and of itself, I'm sorry to report to you, is absolutely powerless to help us. Church attendance cannot by itself help us. It may change a little behavior. It will not change the human heart. So by now, Paul's been teaching the gospel for about 20 years. He's made the case in Romans 1 that all people need the gospel. He's shown us that the whole race, the human race, is corrupt. And today he opens chapter 2, and it's as if he anticipates having objectives to what he's already said about the religious community. And so he starts talking about the religious community. And so as we uh, read, every time you see the word Jew, you can uh, in, inject uh, church-attending Christian for our purposes. Because that's who he's talking to. He's talking to the religious community. Okay? So uh, instead of saying, yeah, you tell them, Paul. You tell those religious people, Paul. You should put them in their place. You show them how it is, Paul. Instead, why don't we humbly say, God, show me in what ways I am like the very religious people that Paul is confronting. Would you do that with me? I'm going to do that myself today. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore. Now, when you read uh, that word, therefore, it means it's there for something. <laughs> there was something else there. And, and so we've just come through chapter one. And he says, therefore, it's a logical progression of thought. Um, he's saying, hey, all of you that were just shaking your heads at how bad everybody is, because we've just talked about how bad everybody is. Now let me tell you something. You have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul is saying, if you look within, you religious person, your heart is the same. People say, man, I love the book of Romans. And I want to say, you haven't been paying very much attention, have you? Because the book of Romans doesn't get encouraging, frankly, until chapter 8. We're going to be waiting in some, in some difficult allegations of us for a while yet. And so uh, today, it's a full attack on the church attender. We don't get to say amen, really, until chapter 8. Until then, we say, oh my. That's what we say until then. So Paul says, you religious people, you think you're better because you know the Bible. You know the right answers to the questions. You go to church. You think that makes you righteous in the sight of God. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance or heart change? Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, non-repentant, non-turning back to God, heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the church-attending Christian first, and also the secularists. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the church-attending Christian first, and also for also also for the secularist, for God shows no partiality. This is an echo of what we read in Pastor uh, in chapter 1 that said God even impresses there are people that know God based on their conscience. They respond to the promptings of, of the Holy Spirit, of God's presence in their conscience, even though they may not have yet believed the gospel. God notices that. Some of you may think, uh, wait a minute, Verse 6, that was confusing. Uh, Paul changed his mind about the gospel. Is that, is that what he did? Didn't he just get done explaining in chapter 1 that salvation is based on grace through faith, that it's, it's not uh, earned uh, in works? And now he's saying in verse 6, God's going to repay us according to our works. That's a great question. It does seem to be pitted against chapter 1 a bit, but let me explain. Verse 6 is a quote from Psalm 62. The psalmist is comparing uh, a bunch of, uh, complaining rather, about a bunch of, of, of religious people who honor God with their mouths, but their feet are quick to run into violence. They give this external show of religion, but internally they're filled with wickedness. And Paul's point is this. Listen, external practices of religion do not equal inward heart transformation. That goes for Catholics. That goes for Pentecostals. That goes for everybody in between. God sees the human heart. And when God evaluates us, it doesn't matter that we have conformed to some church's tradition. It matters that our heart has been transformed by his goodness. So on the final day, God's going to look less at outward performance, and he's going to look more at our inward motivations. Why were we at church? Was it to be seen? Was it to be thought civil? And upstanding, this means many things that we've done, frankly, aren't going to hold water with God. Because our motivations were off. We can do very good things with very bad motivations. They look real good. There are a lot of things that look good on the surface, but God judges us what's beneath the surface. Uh, he judges us based on the condition of our hearts. That may beg the question in your mind, are you saying, Pastor, that heart motivations determine whether or not I get into heaven? Are you saying I'm going to be judged by my motivations? Listen very carefully. In one sense, no. Because we know that we're saved by the grace of God through our faith. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. But in another sense, absolutely. Listen closely. Your life, your life is the best illustration of what you actually believe. That's the point that James will make so profoundly. Faith isn't about singing a few songs each week. Faith isn't about walking the aisle to the table. 
Faith is a heart change. Repentance isn't just painting the fence and raising your hand. Repentance is a heart change. Conversion isn't just about getting wet in baptism. Conversion isn't about attending church on the regular. Conversion is God making us a new person on the inside. And what that means is when we have truly been impacted by God, good works will always follow. Always follow from somebody who has been truly impacted by God. When Jesus truly saves somebody, they live differently. It's true that we're saved by faith alone, grace alone. The faith leads us to good works. It does. Yes, God could put us on trial in heaven and say, has this person's life demonstrated the results of true heart change. What are you really saying, Pastor? I'm saying that everybody, every one of us has two testimonies. We have a testimony of our mouths and we have a testimony of our actions. And they must be congruent in the sight of God. Million dollar question is not what has your mouth said about Jesus Christ? The million-dollar question is, what has your life said about Jesus Christ? Verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. Listen to this. It's not the possessors of the Bible, Paul is saying, who are righteous in God's sight. It's the doers of the Bible who are righteous in God's sight. Verse 14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the Bible... By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the good news. They show that the work of the Bible is written on their hearts, and while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Even non-Christians have stamped on them God. And they can choose to listen or reject. Even non-Christians know deep down right from wrong. So simply possessing a Bible does not make somebody right with God. Only doing what it says makes someone right with God. Having a Bible again is not enough. Paul's making the point when we peel back these layers of religion, we're going to find the same corrupted mess in professing folks that we find in non-professing folks. Paul's saying one day God's going to expose the hearts of everybody, those who profess, Jews, those who don't, Gentiles, and God will see through all of those observances, all of those mannerisms, all of those customs, right down to the center of the human heart and know what's actually going on. And generally speaking, that's going to be as bad a day for a number of the religious as it will a number of the secular. Because the fallen heart deceives us. All of our hearts deceive us. It'll lead us to believe we're good when we are, in fact, not. Let's do a little exercise to prove this to you. 
Some of you love taking those ridiculous quizzes on social media that tell you like what kind of cheese you are if you were a cheese or what kind of hobbit house you would live in if you were a hobbit or um, whatever, um, what kind of character you'd be on some TV show. Um, so I've got a little quiz for you to take. Take out a welcome card if you wouldn't mind. Go ahead and do that. Grab one now in the chair back in front of you. We're going we're gonna to write on a bunch of these this morning and throw them away or take them home with you. And, and we're going to tell you where your heart stands before God. So if you grab a pen and a welcome card, you don't have to write your name on this. This can be an anonymous quiz. Um, simply put a yes column on one side and a no column on the other. No numbers, nothing else. Yes no, we're going to do eight out of ten commandments. The other two take a little more explaining. So we'll just do eight. You can put a check in the yes column if you have obeyed this commandment to the tilt. And a no if you have not in any way obeyed this commandment. Okay? Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Can you say I have never put anything before God in my life? God has always been first in my thoughts, first in my affections, First in my actions, has worshiping God always been your greatest passion? If you've kept that commandment, put a check mark under the yes column. If you have at times forsaken that commandment, broken that commandment, put in a check mark by no. Number three, again, we're skipping a couple. You shall not take my name in vain. If you can say, I have always held the name of God in highest regard, I have never uttered the name of God carelessly, check yes, I've obeyed this command. If you can say, the name I talk, act, spend money, and, and, and the way, excuse me, I talk, act, spend money, even drive my car, gives complete honor to the God whose name I attach to my life, answer yes, if not, answer no. Number five, honor your parents. Honor your parents. If you have always respected the parental authorities in your life, obeying them both when they were watching and when they were not watching, check yes. This, by the way, I would include teachers and traffic cops and the IRS. Check in the yes column if you've complied. Check in the no column if in some capacity you failed. Number six, you shall not kill. Most of you are tempted to already mark yes right away, but don't forget what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He took it to another level. This level includes hateful thoughts. It includes the slightest bit of pleasure you may have taken in someone else's stumbling or in harm done to somebody else. So if you have never wished harm on anybody, put a check in the yes column. If not, put a check in the no column. You've, ob you've obeyed. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus also took this one to the next level. So if you've never had sex with someone outside of the bonds of marriage and you have never entertained sexual thoughts about someone you're not married to, put a check in the yes column. Otherwise, put a check in the no column. Number eight, you shall not steal. Can you say I've never taken anything that doesn't belong to me? This includes downloading music and media illegally. This includes cheating in school. This includes fudging your tax return. This includes rounding up a time clock. This includes taking extra hotel shampoos. This includes surfing the web on company time. 
This includes taking credit that's owed to somebody else. This includes not tithing at the church you attend. Yes, I've kept that command, or no, I haven't. You shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not lie. This includes truth bending. This includes truth stretching. This includes unfulfilled promises. Yes, I've kept it. No, I have not. Number 10, you shall not covet. Have you ever wanted something that was not yours? Have you ever been jealous of something somebody else has, their ability, their success? If your answer is, I've kept the commandment, you shall not covet. Yes, if not, no. All right. Trade with your neighbor. We're going to grade these. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You get the point, I hope. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Paul's saying when you really look down into your heart's motives, don't you do the very things you tell others not to do? You teach your kids, don't steal but you fudged a tax return or two. You, you say, don't commit adultery, but you sexually fantasize about people you're not married to. Verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul says, make no mistake about it, all of the secularists and unchurched people can peer right through that thin layer of veneer of religiosity. And you have, they have noticed the same corrupt heart as everybody else. And that is why they don't want to attend church. Paul's saying, if anything, religion has made us worse. Religiously, uh, religiosity, uh, I mean, Paul says, basically is like a disease. It takes everyone, or rather makes everyone around you just want to vomit. So in our remaining time together, I want to give you a few forms that religion takes in the human heart. And I'll give you these expressions in the form of questions. Here are some ways religion works itself out in a human being. Are you smug? Religion will make you smug. Do you have a very subtle, kind of nauseating air about you? Does the air give off vibes like this? I have everything together. I don't have the problems you people have because I I just kind of do a better job than you do in life, frankly. Generally speaking, I'm a better class of person than you are. Ask yourself this, when you hear about somebody else's kids getting in trouble at school, 
Is your gut response? Um, my kid would never do that. I'm so thankful I've done something right as a parent. Or is your gut response, man, I feel for that parent. I know parenting is impossible. My kid's got problems too. That God, uh, thank God rather for grace, uh, because if not for it, all kids would be ruined. Thank God for grace in my parenting. When you find out that some other famous pastor has fallen into sin, what is your first response? Man, it serves him right. This has been my response at times. Man, it serves him right. I didn't like his theology anyway. He's been cocky for years. All famous Christians are, are hypocrites. Or is it Heavenly Father, I hate this happened to this individual, but please let me take this opportunity to, with vulnerability, look, peer into my own life to find out, study if there are any areas that I need to repent of. We're all made of the same stuff. I'm weak. Are you smug? Second, are you overly sensitive? Religion will make you overly sensitive. Think about it. If your identity is built on your upstanding nature and, and, and righteousness, what's going to happen when somebody undermines that or questions that? They'd be attacking your identity. And so if somebody questions you or challenges you, is that deeply bothersome to you? Does that devastate you? And, and so are you used to being right because in your eyes you are, so you have a hard time taking criticism? What about somebody who's confronted you with sin in your life? Do you get defensive? Do you immediately start listing in your mind some problems they have in their family to make you feel better about yourself? Or do you receive that rebuke? Chew the meat, spit out the bones. You, you, you can accept truth from people whose sources even have bad motivations. Did you know that? Just because somebody's rotten doesn't mean they don't say something truthful at times. Number three, are you judgmental? Religion will make you judgmental. Do you need to find other people who are worse than you to make you feel better about yourself? Are you always finding fault in other people? And when you see their faults, are you not compassionate toward them and feeling, uh, and feeling for them, but just pointing out their, thought, their faults. Tim Keller said this, you will be at best cold and at worst outright condemning toward those who are struggling if you're religious. Rather than speaking words of encouragement to the struggler, helping to lift them up, you speak words of gossip about them to others to show yourself in a comparatively good light. Are you judgmental? Number four, are you hypocritical? Religion will make you hypocritical. Is your stance towards God's word really more theory than anything else? Do you like to learn concepts of the truth, but you don't want to be confronted by the truth? Paul's saying the Bible was not written for information. The Bible was written for transformation. For transformation, on this, Tim Keller said, a real Christian finds the Bible living, active. When they hear it, read it, they are convicted, comforted, thrilled, disturbed, melted, slammed down, or lifted up. Number five, last one. Are you insecure? 
insecurity is a mark of a religious person. Think about it. Are you always worried? Am I good enough? Does Pastor Zach see me as a good person? Does, does God think I'm good enough? You think it's on your own merit. You are religious. What's the result of Christian people being religious? The result, unfortunately, tragically, is that the irreligious are not interested in Jesus Christ. They dislike God because they watch the people that serve him talk but not walk. And it doesn't matter if it's the religious Jews of the first century or fundamentalist Christians of the 21st century. Look at verse 25. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. This, this is what happens when we move through the Bible verse by verse. We land on verses about circumcision, okay? So circumcision, just quickly, was an outward sign of the promise between God and the Jewish people. In the days before modern standards of cleanliness that we have now, uh, not being circumcised often led to um, infectious diseases. And so circumcision was at the point of new life, at the point of a baby, removing a possibility for filthiness, and, and really that's all I've got to say about that. Um, if you have other questions, just ask Chris Lang. Chris knows a lot about circumcision, okay? But the point is this. It was an outward sign of what God was doing in their heart. In an hour day, that is basically what baptism is, is it not? It's an outward sign of what God's doing in the heart, an inward promise. You're washed by water on the outside, yes, but it's a picture of God cleaning the inside. It's as if you're being buried and brought back to life. So my question is, if you've been baptized in water, if you've been baptized in water, does your heart show signs of being cleansed? You took communion today. Does your life show evidence of Jesus living inside? If we put you on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in the private conversations you've had? Would there be enough evidence in the inner thoughts you've had? Would there be enough evidence in the room that you were in alone to say this was not Christianity, this was religiosity? You're no different than a non-believer. If your spouse couldn't stand up here and say and explain, he or she knows you're a Christian by observing the following behaviors at home, how you treat your family, maybe it's because you've never truly been a Christian. You may be communionized, you may be baptized, you may be circumcised, but you're not transformed. Verse 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew or a Christian who is one outwardly and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh, nor is baptism, by the way, nor is coming forward for juice in a cracker. Verse 29, circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. Paul is saying, please beware of religious inoculation. We have medical professionals in our church. What is inoculation? In some cases, it is being given 
a dead form of a disease so that you don't contract the live form of the disease, right? The live version. I don't know about you. I don't want the dead version of God, which is religion. Amen? I want the living and active God. And if I have the dead version, I can't catch him. And I don't want to not catch him. Paul's point, religion cannot change you. Only by embracing God in the heart can you be changed. After the second successful heart surgery by Dr. Christian Bernard, the patient wanted to see his old heart. Second successful transplant in history. For the first time, he let him do it. For the first time, a human held his own old heart in his hand. And according to the story, the, the man said, so this is what's given me so much trouble. And he handed it back to the doctor and he walked out of the room. He didn't want it. Paul is encouraging us to do the same thing to realize we have a new heart in Christ Jesus. So my question is to you, have you embraced God in your heart? Not have you been baptized, not have you taken communion, not even have you joined a church, not even have you prayed that prayer. Paul's encouraging us, we need a new heart. I've heard it said, many people will miss heaven by 18 inches. You know what 18 inches is? It's the distance between your head and your heart. The Father gave the Son, Jesus, so that you could be brought into his family. I'll conclude with this. We've gone through two chapters nearly of Romans. Scholars tell us that Romans 1 and 2 are like the story, this observation has been made, of the prodigal son. Quickly, a man has two sons. Do you know this story? A man has two sons. The youngest son rebels against the father, rejects him outright, runs away. Romans 1 is about him. We looked at that big list of sins. The son is far, fleeing his homeland. He's eating with pigs. He's miserable. He's defiled. He's living it up, squandering his inheritance. The father is willing and eager to forgive that wandering son when he comes home. And when he does, he takes him in the house. He pours out love on him. He throws a big celebration. My son, my obviously sinful son has come home. And the older son, the religious son, if you will, gets angry. And he storms out of the house. How could you receive him back, dad? He's been so bad to you, dad. And so the father actually leaves the party and goes outside looking for his older son who's been living right all along. And here's the detail that most people overlook when they tell the story. The older son is also out of the house. He's walked away from the father. He separated himself. So here's the point. Both the squandering son and the super-religious son wandered away from the father. You can, you can wander either way, the Romans one way or the Romans two way. And either way, here is the positive turn that you, I hope, have been waiting for. Either way, the father stands ready 
to welcome you back to him. Regardless of whether you're obviously sinful or all too obviously religious. If you repent, if you tell him you're sorry, he'll embrace you. And he'll tell you to get rid of your false sense of goodness and humble yourself. And he'll change you on the inside out. But you must admit that you need him. Father, I told the band before this service that I hope that I, that, I, that I gather, that I think is the pastor of this amazing bunch of people, that I can't think of anybody who really needs to hear this at the Mill Church. And nonetheless, it's in your word in Romans chapter 2. And so we preach on religiosity because the Apostle Paul talks about it. And I don't know, to be honest, anybody that really needs to hear this. But Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak and convict and change if anybody in here has treated it anybody else poorly from a pedestal of feigned goodness. And I pray that you would urge that person or persons to repent and to see themselves as vulnerable and weak and just as in need of saving grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.